Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool and cloudy day here in the capital is Alexa Hillier. Alexa is a lecturer and therapist who owns Burley Hair Beauty Academy based in Peterborough, Cambridgeshire. Uh, Alexa, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, hi, Scott. Thanks ever so much for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Now, um, the dominant headline throughout 2020 has been the COVID-19 situation, of course, and the impact that that's had on leaders within all walks of life. But how has the pandemic as a challenge affected things for you and your business? Okay, so our business is in the hair and beauty industry. And Mm. so ultimately, straight away, we were closed, um, shut for 16 weeks in total. Initially, that was a massive shock. We could never have anticipated that a thriving business's doors would be closed. Um, And so after that initial shock had sunk in, um, our main issue was to think about protecting staff. And so all of our staff were protected under the furlough scheme. And then really, it was about thinking about how we could use this time positively and so set about fulfilling my responsibilities to both my students, who suddenly their education had been halted, um, and then obviously our staff as well. So when it came to students, we instantly looked at online classes. I think that everybody took everything online who hadn't done anything of that before. And these went really well. The uptake was great. I think it was a platform that students could see a friendly face but also continue their education. And I quickly learned then I could record these online classes. Um, So for students that weren't able to attend them live, I could then put them onto a YouTube channel that I'd set up, which is something I'd always wanted to do and never had the time really to be able to do it. Um, So that was a real positive. And then with staff, uh, we wanted to be able to support their mental and emotional needs. So although we couldn't see them on a regular basis as we would normally We um, did online get-togethers, quizzes, um, such like, just to make sure that, again, there was a safe place with friendly faces that once a week people could touch base with. Then 16 weeks passed um, and we were able to reopen, which for our industry was a really interesting time. There was a lot of conflicting guidance about when we could open and when we could do certain treatments and services. But once we got our head around the dates and the times that we were given, we've really hit the ground running, our future feels quite positive. I think um, this pandemic showed that our industry is very valued by our clients and consumers and people really missed it. Um, And so I think in a world where things aren't normal at all, visiting your hairdresser or your therapist or continuing your training is something that can feel very normal in an abnormal time. And with regards to sort of the remote side of things, how much longer do you think that that's going to be a solution that you're going to be persisting with? Because it is quite clear that a working vaccine, if stroke when one does come around, isn't necessarily going to be a magic bullet that will return everything to normal straight away. There will still be some people who are anxious to sort of go out into sort of classroom settings with plenty of people there. So it could well be something that you might have to persist with for some time yet. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have definitely got um, plans in place to continue that as we have been. Our industry is very practical. So although theory classes are great to teach online, it's very difficult to teach the practical aspects of a haircut or a massage online. However, luckily for us, our class sizes are really small. So we already only had a maximum of six students in a class. And for the majority of them, they've all been happy to come back. So generally, our our industry and our business has gone back to fairly normal um, ways of working, obviously, with the guidance in place. Um, But we now feel much more confident in if we had to close again or if we had to change our working practices, that we've got plans in place that we can accommodate that quite easily. And there's also an argument for returning to um the normal way of working as well because as you've said there i mean there is of course the uh, the remote solution for keeping people in contact with each other but at the same time it doesn't always replicate the face-to-face human social interaction does it and there is also a mental no, health and well-being yeah. argument for keeping that in place and making sure that workplaces as we knew them do return in some capacity even if in a hybrid form where we do work from home for some of the week Yeah, absolutely. And our industry is all about that. You know, we are about human contact and well-being and promoting that. And I think that's what we noticed that a lot of our clients returning to the salon side of our business really missed was that human contact um, and that power. of. So absolutely, we are definitely advocating um, that sort of sociability that comes from the workplace. And I do have to ask you this question, just given the industry that you're working in. So when the salon side of the business was first allowed to reopen, did you ever find yourself having to deal with any sort of home domestic hairdressing disasters that people had tried during <laughs> lockdown? Or We definitely saw some amazing sights, that's for sure. So the first few weeks was so interesting. We didn't recognise some clients when they came in for how different they looked. <laughs> so we were happy to put right the disasters and we were happy just to see people really. So yeah, there were some interesting sites. I can certainly imagine so. And um, I can imagine as well that um, looking on at the economic impact of COVID-19 and what it has done to people's employment prospects, especially, there are some youngsters that are going to be out there that are quite downhearted by what's going on and maybe a little bit disheartened about their employment prospects. Um, So as sort of a business leader within your own right, what would your message be to those people who may be looking for work to really get them to pick up their heads and start on the road to success? Because now is an opportunity really for upskilling, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, we are going to enter some difficult times. But I think when you've got difficult times, there's also opportunity that grows from that. And we've definitely seen that over what could be seen as a really negative impact to our business. It's actually made us think in a different way and a more positive way. Um, I think that with regard to our industry, I think it's an industry that is always going to be popular amongst people. Um, You might not have the money to spend on lavish holidays or um, spending a lot of disposable income on those sorts of things, but people will always want to look after themselves and spend money on feeling better. And we've definitely seen that since um, people have had to isolate. So I think that any youngsters coming into our industry, I think now's a really good time to do that and to be really positive and passionate about it. Our industry is fantastic. I love every aspect of it and the types of people that you come into contact with and the help that you can give those people. So absolutely, there is definitely space for our industry to grow. And with the next generation of therapists and hairdressers coming into it, I think that um, we're on a good trajectory. 
Exactly right. And moving away sort of from the immediate doom and gloom of uh, COVID now, um, I would like to sort of talk about um, your just career in a little bit more detail now, um, Alexa. Um, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that when you first joined Burley Hair Beauty Academy, it wasn't as the owner of the business. It was very much um, you were working there. Um, So what was it that made you go down the ownership route and made you think that going and taking leadership of this business is going to be the way forward for me? So um, Burley is a, um, a family-run business. So my parents started it nearly 40 years ago. Mm. Um, and so predominantly when I first came into the industry, absolutely, I was there um, as an employee. But I think watching them and how they were able to grow the business and that um, sort of extra challenge that the leadership role would give me, I think I just naturally sort of fell into that role as they've been able to pull back from the business a little bit. And if armed with the experience you have now, you could go back to when you took charge of the business. Is there anything that you would maybe do differently? Oh, crikey, that's a good question. Um, No, because I think you learn as you develop. Mm. I think that it's important that we always had a really clear vision for the business. And that vision has always been very clear. Um, But as recent events have shown us, that needs to be adaptable as well. I think it's important to feel inspired all the time by the industry that you work in and have that energy and passion around it. And that's something that definitely my parents have instilled in me and that I hope that I instill in our staff and our students moving forward. Um, balance really is um, a huge factor in our business and making sure that that work-life balance, our work-life balance as well, um, is a key factor. I think that's an incredibly important point that you raise there. Ultimately, leadership, particularly in the business world, is a constant and continuous learning process. We never are a finished article, are we? And as you say, um, we do have to keep adapting. We do have to keep improving with the challenges that come along. It's about being proactive, but also reactive as well. And interestingly as well, going back to the learning point, um, so many people um, who've been on the programme of late have described the COVID situation as being like their first days back in business, having to go back to base six sometimes find new income streams and it just goes to show that so much about leadership is trial and error ultimately yeah absolutely i think that um as a leader you are initially responsible for the role that you're taking on and so that's the service that you're providing and the reputation of that service you know globally but also any people that you are deciding to take on that journey with you and so that is you know, yeah, absolutely have to be adaptable and always looking for the positives in every situation that you um, come across and fulfilling still your business needs, but perhaps in just a slightly different direction. You're absolutely right. Positivity is so, so important in the here and now. I think we could certainly all do with a dose of that. And it is certainly infectious. It really, really is. And hopefully taking that positivity into the future um, in the next 12 months of Alexa. Just before we wrap things up on the programme, I'm interested to understand whereabouts you want the business to be in 12 months time and what it is that you really want to have achieved by then considering everything that is still going on in the world so i think that our industry changes so rapidly and it's very much um, guided by consumers they know what they want and then we are there to supply it so obviously i think that 12 months you would want to have growth and development within your business generally And I think that that offshoots into the students that we train. So often they will go and open up their own salons or spas. They will go and work within the industry. And so really um, instilling um, 
attention to detail and high um, regard for their, the industry that they're entering is really important for me to sort of continue that line or that legacy of therapists and hairdressers into our industry. Um, but I think generally our, our industry changes all the time. I think it's very social media led. It's very fast paced. Um, and so I think there are definitely two ends of the spectrum in our industry, and that's very much the aesthetic and enhancement um, end of the spectrum. And then this very natural um, and being very aware of what we're putting on and into our bodies. And I think that will continue. And I think as therapists and hairdressers going into this industry, you find your um, your sort of level on the spectrum and then you build your brand and your business around that. Um, so we will continue to do that, continue to um, offer the best services that we can in a very safe and comfortable environment. Sounds like you've got plenty to be getting on with, Alexa, and I certainly wish you all the luck um, in those endeavours over the course of the next few months. And in fact, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on our programme at some point in this next year, just to see how that vision is starting to be borne out as well. And we can also just reassess just how far everything um, has come um, with regards to the ongoing situation um, once we do get a chance to speak. Absolutely. Yes, that'd be great. Thank you. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity, Alexa. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the programme today. And uh, most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on as well. Thank you very much. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of the listeners tuning into the programme today as well. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Alexa Hillier, lecturer and therapist and owner of Burley Hair Beauty Academy in Peterborough onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. He enjoyed a distinguished career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has also been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him and that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity 
to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore 
to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. 
uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much 
if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.